Good day, everyone. Great to see you all. Uh, turn back your Bibles to 2 Kings 18. That's where we'll start the story today, but I'll pray as we begin. Our Heavenly Father, the writer of the Psalms, tells us that your word is sweet to the taste, sweeter than honey in our mouths, and we pray that we would have that attitude to your word this morning, that we would see it as something to delight in, something to long to hear. Uh, And so we pray that with that attitude, you will teach us from this story of King Hezekiah. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things uh, I think is really helpful for Christians to do is uh, read or hear the stories of faithful brothers and sisters in Christ who've gone before us. In fact, as I walked into church this morning, I saw someone holding a copy of Fox's Book of Martyrs, which is a story of, of Christians who've died for their faith story right throughout history. Uh, and there are these just wonderful examples of heroes of the faith. And it starts in the Bible. Do you remember we studied Hebrews earlier in the year? And in Hebrews chapter 11, there's that long list of faithful people from the Old Testament who are, who are put before us as examples of faithfulness. Uh, but you might know other great ones from history, some of my heroes, people like Polycarp of Smyrna, besides just liking his name. Uh, but he chose to be burnt at the stake rather than deny Jesus. He was given the choice, just deny Jesus, just say the emperor is God uh, or we'll put you to death and he was willing to be put to death. You know the story of Martin Luther who stood up for the truth of God's word and and, and brought about the the Reformation. One of my heroes, Thomas Cranmer, uh, who took advantage of the political situation in England under Henry VIII and reformed the Anglican church and brought it under the Bible uh, one of my, when I was, got to go to England a few years ago, uh, I was in a church and uh, one of the uh, people there was saying, oh, that Thomas Cranmer ruined the church because he did all these awful things and Victoria had to drag me out of, of the church, away from the, the tour guide. The, these are, are great heroes uh, of church history. But for many of us, we have people we look up to who no one knows, they're just people from our Christian life. It might be that lady who faithfully taught scripture in school and that's how you heard the gospel or the brother here at church who pushed past your reluctance and 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 got you to read the bible with him and challenge you to grow as a christian Uh, but of course no one other than you has heard of those heroes of the faith Uh, but they are heroes and they will have crowns in glory just like martin luther or cramner or those others well, so far in 1 and 2 Kings, we have been hard-pressed to find any of the kings who you would call a hero of the faith, don't you think? I don't think uh, there's been any standouts. Uh, there have been heroes in these stories, but it's tended to be the prophets like Elijah and Elisha, or what I've loved in 1 and 2 Kings is it has been the ordinary people. It's been the widow who was faithful, the young girl that was faithful. It's, it's been these ordinary people, often nameless people. But the kings have not just been hopeless, they have been evil. That's actually the story of one and two kings. And do you notice that, remember we had that repeated refrain over and over again, they did what was evil in the Lord's sight. Finally today, we are meeting a king who is worth following a hero king. His name is Hezekiah. He is a hero of the faith. In fact, it's wonderful how two kings actually slows down for his story. They've been rushing through the kings, you know, one little paragraph, little paragraph. They get to Hezekiah, they slow it down and give us three whole chapters. And I've been looking forward to today, I must admit, because I've been getting a little, you know, sick and tired of the bad king after bad king after bad king. So I'm praying you'll be really encouraged as we look at today's story. Uh, But I'd love... 
And I hope you have been reading along in 1 and 2 Kings. I've been really encouraged by messages from people who've asked questions about parts we haven't covered. I hope you've been reading along, but go and read all three chapters about Hezekiah yourself afterwards. Let's get into it though. So we're starting with Hezekiah, who I'm calling the new David. And this is the start of chapter 18. So as we've been reading about all these kings, what's been the summary? Well, in Israel, in the north, they did what was evil in the Lord's side over and over again. In Judah, remember Israel's now been wiped out, there's only Judah left. Judah, it's been much the same, king after king. Occasionally there was a good one, like Jehoshaphat or Jotham, uh, when it said they did what was right in the Lord's eyes. That's how you know, this is a good king. He did what was right in the Lord's eyes. But even so, every one of even those good kings, it then always says, but not like David. But not, he did what was right, but not as good as David. I always feel for them a bit like that, that uh, mother who has the favourite son. Oh, you did well, but not as good as your brother. You know, that sort of idea. But what was their problem? Well, there was no one who, like David, was wholehearted in their following of God. And in particular, there was no one who was ever willing, like David, to stand up and tear down the idols and tear down the false worship of the people, who was willing to actually lead the people in following God. Now at last we meet Hezekiah, look what it says, chapter 18, verse 1. It says, in the third year of Israel's king Hoshea, son of Elah, Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, became king of Judah, and then go to verse 3, he did what was right in the Lord's sight, just as his ancestor David had done. And if you've been reading 1 and 2 Kings, that is an amazing sentence. It, that is like, wow, this, this is unheard of. Someone like David, could this actually be the son of David who's been promised? This is the closest we're going to get. And I hope you see how big this is. And so what did Hezekiah do that was so wonderful? Look at verse 4. He removed the high places shattered the sacred pillars and cut down the Asherah poles. So he he smashed all the pagan shrines and all the, the pagan idols, but he didn't just go and smash the false gods. Look what it says. He broke into pieces the bronze snake that Moses made, for the Israelites burned incense to it up to that time. He called it Nehushtan. So he didn't just smash the false gods. He even tore down the things that were tied to the true God that had become unhelpful. He was like what we call the iconoclast during the Reformation. I talked about Thomas Cranmer before. Well, during the Reformation, they they went into the churches and they said, you shouldn't have a statue of Mary. Smash it, get rid of it. You shouldn't have pictures of the saints everywhere. Get rid of them Uh, and so forth. Now, of course, when people do that, when people destroy the things people are worshipping instead of Christ alone, instead of God alone, people don't like them. That's what happened during the Reformation. It still happens today, to this day. If you go on a tour, like I said before, of many of those churches in England, uh, many of the tour guides will complain about it. They say, sadly, those thugs destroyed the lovely statues that used to be in these churches. Those statues were idols. It's just a reminder, by the way, that truly faithful, godly leaders will point out unhelpful things we hold dear. They will smash our idols. They will upset people sometimes people would have resented Hezekiah they would have said but God gave us that bronze snake who are you to smash it we've been doing that since my grandmother's time they would have said it doesn't make it right just remember that if a Christian leader is universally liked he is probably not faithful if a Christian leader does not upset people sometimes not through being rude and obnoxious but through calling into question our idolatry 
Well, he's probably not faithful, but Hezekiah was a faithful leader and he copped it because of it. But that's what he did. But at its heart, why was he like David? Look at verse 5. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord God of Israel. Not one of the kings of Judah was like him, either before him or after him. He remained faithful to Yahweh and did not turn from following him, but kept the commands the Lord had commanded Moses. In the end, that is what made Hezekiah great. He wholeheartedly followed God. He remained faithful to God. He lived by God's law and God blessed Hezekiah's reign. God doesn't always bless the reign of the faithful kings, but here he does. He keeps Judah free. Hezekiah would not let them serve the Assyrian kings and he reclaimed land that Judah hadn't held since the time of David and Solomon. Whatever else Hezekiah did, verses 1 to 8 are a wonderful summary. Uh, This is a great hero of the faith. But that's what makes the rest of these chapters so interesting because we're now given an insight into a few of the major things that happened during Hezekiah's reign. So it says, here's verses 1 to 8, he was a great one, did great things. Then it gives us another two and a half chapters of what Hezekiah did and he actually messes up quite a lot. It's a bit strange, he gets this great rap at the start but then the stories are all about things where he sort of gets it half right, half wrong most of the time and I think that's really important we'll come back to why later on. Now, as I say, I can't do with everything in these chapters. I'm going to guide us through. I'm going to pull out some challenges and encouragements, but I really do want you to read these chapters. I think you'll find them so encouraging. But then I'll draw together the big lessons we learn at the end. Uh, besides that, though, it's just a ripper story, so enjoy it. Uh, so my next heading is Jerusalem under siege, and this is chapter 18 from verse 13. At this time, Assyria was the world power, So Sennacherib was their king, remember, they've just wiped out the northern kingdom of Israel and so they are rampaging around the world, wiping out anyone who doesn't pay them off, basically. Wiping out anyone who doesn't bribe them off. Egypt was the only other real power uh, and they were pretty weak at this time. So Assyria is just running, rampaging through. So they've already wiped out Israel, now they're coming to Judah and Jerusalem. So what does Hezekiah do? How does he stave off the threat? Well, it's fair to say that he doesn't do well. He offers to buy them off. And so they make a totally outlandish sort of ransom demand of Hezekiah. Look at what Hezekiah had to do to pay what they wanted. Verse 15, so Hezekiah gave him all the silver found in the Lord's temple and in the treasuries of the king's palace. At that time, Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the Lord's sanctuary and from the doorpost he had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. Now, if you've been paying attention, we have seen over and over again through one and two kings, this is never the right thing to do. This is never a good move. It is a lack of faith to give up the things that have been given to God to try to buy off the enemies of God. And here's the thing, it never works. If you try to buy off a bully, he thinks, well, I might might as well come back for more. If you paid me that much, I I obviously didn't ask for enough. I'll I'll come back and and ask for more. By the way, I think that point, this is just an aside, that point about bullies is so relevant to the church today. Uh, There are so many modern Christian church leaders who are trying to placate the world's antagonism to God uh, and, and, and to his word. And they say, we just need to tone down a little bit and then they'll, then they'll listen to what we say about Jesus. If we just deny that little bit of the Bible, if we just tone down what we say on that part of God's word, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. In a world that's out of step with God, that, work, that works as well as it did for Hezekiah buying off the Assyrians. 
You see, when you tone down what the Bible says about marriage, well, the, the world will then say, well, we don't like what you say about gender. And when you tone down what the Bible says about gender, well, then they'll say, we don't like what the Bible says about judgment. And before you know it, you've denied the truth about Jesus. And sadly, that's what so many modern church leaders in our own denomination have been trying to do. Buy off the bully. Don't bother. Just stand up for God's word from the beginning. Trust God from the beginning, which is what Hezekiah wished he had done here. So Sennacherib sends a massive army led by these three guys with the great titles. I love their names. You see, as we read it, the Tartan, the Rabsaris and the Rabshaka. It's like a Scotsman, a Turkish pizza and a, I don't know what else. But anyway, and, and they lay siege to Jerusalem and the Rabshaka, I just love his name. I'm going to be saying it over and over again because I just love his name. Uh, but he was like this great general or, or this official of the Assyrians. And he makes these mocking speeches, just taunting Hezekiah and, and, and taunting the people of Jerusalem later on. Uh, read all of chapter 18 and chapter 19 later on, especially all of chapter 18. This guy was just a great orator. He, he, he was a great uh, uh, sort of like uh, public speaker. He, he tries to reason with Hezekiah, first of all. He tries to bribe Hezekiah out. And then he switches to trying to get the people to turn on their king, Hezekiah. He purposely speaks in Hebrew so that they can understand what he's saying. If you look at verse 27, it's pretty awful. He, he says, uh, you, you know what's going to happen to you. Uh, he says, you know what's going to happen to you if you stick in there with Hezekiah when you run out of food in there, you, you'll be eating your own excrement. You know, he's, he really lays it on, if you like. Down to verse 31, he says, just get rid of Hezekiah. We'll give you a great place to live somewhere else in the kingdom. Yeah, you'll lose Jerusalem, but you'll survive. But for all his clever words and for all his military power, which have worked against every other country they've rolled over in their conquest, he makes a big mistake here. Because he doesn't just mock the people of Israel or Judah. He doesn't just mock Hezekiah. He moves on to mocking Yahweh. He treats the God of the universe with contempt. He compares the God of the universe to the worthless idols. He says, look, none of the other nations' gods have been able to save them. We've crushed them. Your so-called God, Yahweh, do you really think he can save you? See, for him, the Lord is just another block of wood, just another name for, for an idol like all the other gods, like the Baals or the Asherahs or all the others, and he doesn't know what he has done at this point. This is a very sober point to make, but God is not to be mocked. There are so many people in our world today who will face an awful moment on the judgment day, people who've used the name of Jesus as a curse, people who've mocked God as an imaginary father in the sky. In fact, even just everyone like you and me before we came to know Jesus who treated God like he did not exist. Just look at Galatians chapter 6 verse 7 from the New Testament. It says, do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever a man sows he will also reap. But we'll get to that in a minute because now we see Hezekiah's response. Come with me, my third Hezekiah's response, this is 1 Kings 19. See, Hezekiah was far from perfect, you've seen that already. Uh, his first choice often in situations is to do the wrong thing so his first choice he was to try to buy off the Assyrians but like David before him who often made bad choices first up when push came to shove he kept his faith in God and that's what you see here in chapter 19 Hezekiah hates hearing the name of God mocked by this awful rabshaker 
It's funny, it doesn't just make God act, if you like, it, it makes Hezekiah realise, hang on, they are mocking my Lord. I better stand up. Uh, and that's what you see here in chapter 19. He hates hearing the name of God mocked and it drives him to do what faithful people do. Look at chapter 19, verse 1. It says, when Hezekiah heard their report, he tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth and went into the Lord's temple. It's an act of repentance. He repents of his own lack of faith, his own failure. He humbles himself and he approaches the Lord in prayer. We're not going to read it now, but it's the same in the wonderful story in chapter 20. So you can read that story later on. When Hezekiah learns that he has a terminal illness, it's a famous story. He prays earnestly and God extends his life for 15 years. The prayers of a righteous person are powerful and effective, not because prayer is powerful, prayer is just words, but because the one we pray to is powerful. Now, it was always God's will for Hezekiah to live as long as he lived. He knew how many years Hezekiah would live before he was even born. It was always God's will to save Jerusalem at this point. He knew what his plans were from Jerusalem and his people from the very beginning. It's a funny thing though, God doesn't need our prayers. It's not like God needed Hezekiah to pray at these moments of crisis, but God somehow in his sovereignty, and I think this is wonderful, includes as part of his plan his faithful people asking him, repenting and turning to him in prayer and asking for things. That is part of the way God then brings those things about. Now the fool mocks that and says, well, why bother praying then if God already knows what he's going to do? But the person who knows God says, wow, how wonderful that our God includes our faithful prayers in what he does in this world. See, how could we not then pray when that is the God we know? And you can read his wonderful prayer in verses 15 to 19 again later on. But Hezekiah doesn't just pray. Notice this in the story. He goes to God's prophet. Remember how the bad kings used to try to avoid Elijah and Elisha? Remember as we read through 1 Kings and then the early parts of 2 Kings, it was like they'd do everything to get out of the way of Elijah and Elisha. Keep that, keep that troublesome prophet away from me, not Hezekiah. The unfaithful avoid God's word. But faithful people want to hear God speak. And God's prophet in Jerusalem at this time was Isaiah. Now, I love this. Uh, that's the same prophet Isaiah who wrote the longest book in the Bible, the, the, the book of Isaiah. Uh, and as I say, I love this. I love the way the different parts of the Bible in the Old Testament fit together like this. If you want a really rich Bible reading experience this week, read the parts of the book of Isaiah that relate to this part of two kings alongside each other. Go and read Isaiah 36 to 39 alongside these chapters from two kings. You'll, you'll find it so amazing. And just as an aside, how can a person, how a person can properly read the Bible as an adult and, and see the way it fits together despite all its different human authors and not see it for what it is? It truly astounds me. I, I think it is actually uh, the greatest sort of supporting truth to the gospel, but that's for another day. So here Hezekiah goes to Isaiah, God's prophet, because he knows he needs to hear the Lord speak. Of course, we're not Hezekiah. We don't have the prophet Isaiah on tap, but the model of faithfulness is the same for us, isn't it? The model of faithfulness for us, if we trust God, we bring things before him in prayer and we listen to him speak by his word. The Christian life is not that difficult to work out. Faithfulness speaks to God in prayer, listens to God speak by his word, which brings us to what I've called God's amazing response. And this is 1 Kings 19 from verse 20. 
So we look from verse 20. God speaks through Isaiah and he says, don't worry, Hezekiah. I'll teach these Assyrians who is the real God of the universe. That's my paraphrase. Uh, as I said, I'd love you to read this prophecy in full later on. It's just wonderful. Because God speaks to the Assyrians and he says, who are you to mock the God of the universe? Who, who do you think you are to mock the God of the universe? And he reminds them that even though they think they worship other gods, it's God alone who decides who wins the battle. Even where these Assyrians have, have defeated other nations, even when they defeated Israel, the northern kingdom, God decided who would win and who would lose. And then he says what is going to happen here. So look with me from verse 32, chapter 19. It says, Therefore, this is what the Lord says about the king of Assyria, he will not enter this city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or build up an assault ramp against it. He will go back on the road that he came. And he will not enter this city. This is the Lord's declaration. Look at what it says next. Why does God do this? Look at verse 34. I will defend this city and rescue it for my sake and for the sake of my servant David. Why does God save Jerusalem? Yes, he loves his people. Yes, he heard Hezekiah's prayer. Yes, Hezekiah's faithful. But ultimately, why does God do it? For the glory of his own name for his own name's sake, so that people would know that the God of Israel is no idol. He is the true and living God. That's why God has saved us, by the way. Yes, he loves you. He chose you before the creation of the world. But he sent his son to die for you and brought you to faith in Jesus, ultimately for his glory. We have been saved to glorify God. God has called us out of darkness so that we might declare his praises. That's why we exist, to declare the praises of the one who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. And so to finish the story, what did God do? Look from chapter 19, look at verse 35. That night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. When the people got up in the morning, the next morning, they were all, there were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and left. He returned home and lived in Nineveh. We don't know what God did. We don't know how it happened. It seems like it might have been some sort of awful plague that just sort of ran through the Assyrian camp. Either way, God saved Jerusalem and he sent the Assyrians home with their tail between their legs. And then it says a little while later, Sennacherib was killed by his sons, which is exactly what history tells us happened to Sennacherib. Skeptics like to point out the Assyrian records, you know, where they found archaeological records, don't record their army being destroyed outside Jerusalem that day. And then they say, oh, therefore the Bible is making it up. Uh, I think that's a bit silly because none of these ancient kingdoms ever made big statues of their losses, only of their victories. And it's very telling that archaeology has found all sorts of records of Assyria's destruction of all sorts of other places, but none about them destroying Jerusalem. Because the reality is, Jerusalem survived. That's history, and the Bible tells us why. It was because of God, and because of the glory of his name. Okay, let's draw it together. Hezekiah and us. I hope you've heard lots, learned lots about this great story already as we've, uh, we've gone through. But to finish, what are we to take out of it, especially for us? I've got two headings. First of all, I think Hezekiah is, despite all his errors... An example of faithfulness. 
See, Hezekiah was not perfect. He made lots of mistakes. I haven't even pointed out his worst mistake. If you read chapter 20 later on, right at the end, he, he tells some people from a little country he hasn't heard of come, a country called Babylon, uh, and, and sort of like that host who says, come in, come in. He shows them all the treasures of Jerusalem. He, he shows them all their armories. He show, it's like he says, here's my safe, and here's where I keep the codes, and here's where I keep the shotgun. You know, that sort of idea. Uh, and that's why it's Hezekiah's fault, humanly speaking, why when Babylon, Babylon grew and became the great superpower, that's why they came to attack Jerusalem. They said, remember that guy who showed us all that treasure? That's going to be an easy get. God spared Hezekiah the consequence of his foolishness, but the generations to come suffered because of his mistake. So Hezekiah is far from perfect, but he was faithful. Much like David. Hezekiah trusted God, even if sometimes he struggled, even in his weakness, he turned back to God in repentance. He sought to live for God and he sought to trust God and listen to God even in his weakness. It's just a reminder, the child of God is not perfect, this side of glory anyway. Uh, We fail, we make mistakes, we sin, but the faithful person keeps turning back to God in repentance and faith. The faithful person keeps trusting God even in their weakness. You might remember at the start of the sermon, I named some of those heroes of the faith. Every one of those heroes of the faith had massive flaws. I mentioned Thomas Cranmer. When the Roman Catholic Church tried to overturn his reformation in England, they put him in prison and they threatened to burn him at the stake. They tried to get him to sign a statement saying, actually, I retract everything I said. We're not justified by faith alone, in Christ alone, all those things. Saying, I accept the authority of the Pope over and above God's word. And in his weakness... Under the threat of death, Thomas Kremner signed it. He failed. But then he was overcome with guilt. And as they got him up to read out the prepared speech saying how he'd been wrong, he said, I can't do it. And he said, and when you burn me at the stake, I'm going to put this unworthy hand that signed that lie into the fire first. You see, a hero of the faith is not perfect. That's exactly what happened to him. They dragged him out to burn him and he stuck that hand that had denied Jesus into the fire first. You can still go and find the little cross on the road where it happened in Oxford. You've got to watch out for the traffic that drives over the top of it. But you can still find it. My point is though, faithfulness is not perfection. It's ultimately trusting God and his promises. The heroes of the faith, like Hezekiah, are not perfect, but in their weakness, ultimately, they trust God and his promises, which is what he wants us to do. But that drives me to my final point, which is ultimately, let's follow the true king. If Hezekiah is the greatest king, it says this, if he is the greatest king other than David that God ever had, if that's the best, then that shows you why we need the true son of David, doesn't it? Ultimately, do not put your trust in heroes of the faith. Don't put your trust in preachers. Don't put your trust in in ministers. Follow their example as they follow the example of Christ, but you'll soon find their flaws. Don't put your trust in anyone because once you know them, you'll spot the flaws. Follow the perfect king. Jesus alone is the perfect king. He is the one we trust and he is the only Lord who does not let anyone down. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, We thank you that we know the true son of David. 
the only one who is without flaw, without sin, but who is willing to serve us and die for us. And we thank you that we follow the King Jesus and help us to trust always in him. For we thank you for heroes of the faith who show you even in their imperfections, even in sometimes their sin, what it is to trust you and to trust your promises. And so in that way, we pray that we would follow the example of King Hezekiah. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.